You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Charlie Walsh. Charlie Walsh was the coach of the Australian cycling team from 1980 until 2000. During that time, he took the Australian team from a world rank of 25 to number one. Along the way, he coached cyclists to 10 world and 12 Olympic Games records. And across Olympics and world championships, his athletes won 43 gold medals, 31 silver medals and 43 bronze medals. He has multiple Coach of the Year awards and was recognised for his services to cycling when he was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1987. Charlie is a master coach with a legendary reputation in the world of cycling. He was an early adopter of high-performance psychology where he coached his athletes to push themselves beyond their physical and mental limits. And you will hear him share his views on the connection between the mind and body in depth. The parts of this conversation that resonated the most with me were his thoughts on everything athletes do as being driven by the mind, and so therefore athletes must have the best mind in the competition, decision-making under mental duress, his philosophy of self-challenge and using it to propel yourself where others do not want to go, and the process of training the mind through stressing it in the same way you develop the body. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Charlie Walsh, good morning, well, good afternoon, rather, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. I'm pleased to be here, and it's certainly afternoon over here in Adelaide. Let's start with something quite easy, Charlie. Can you tell me where you are in the world and what you've been up to today? I'm uh, down in Adelaide, South Australia. I've just put dinner on for tonight and I played golf this morning, not particularly well, but that's, uh, that's how it goes. But I have a lot of fun with the guys. So that's basically been my day. Well, I'm very thankful to get a bit of your time before dinner to talk all things cycling 
mental development and hopefully a little bit about gold medals as well. So Charlie, I have been looking forward to this discussion for a long time because I think your record is unique in world sport and I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. And I'd probably like to start there actually because you coached at six Olympic Games, 15 World Cycling Championships, as well as traveling extensively all over the world with cycling. You really have had a global perspective of other coaches. And so I'd like to ask from this vantage point, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? When I first started coaching, my attitude was, well, I don't know it all. And far from that, uh, I need to have a look and see what the best coaches in the world are doing and how their athletes are also behaving because behaving because I've seen that as a, uh, as part of the package. I didn't just look at cycling coaches. I looked at coaches from AFL. I looked at two swimming coaches, a Forbes Carlisle and a guy from the USA and people from other sports. And from that, I sort of derived that one of the key ingredients in them was their philosophy. And your philosophy is all-encompassing. But they were certainly very clear, as i seen it, what is the best in their particular sport, sporting field and what is required to get there. They were certainly very direct. They were clear, concise, self-challenged, self-disciplined, stood right out amongst them. They were not about self so the ego was not about that. It was about what can I do for you? Uh, they certainly were not know-it-alls. They were quite prepared to seek information from others. They had a concept of an athlete-centred program where all are responsible and accountable. And I think that's also another part of the ingredient that has to be there. They had a capacity to take others along with them. And how, how were they doing that? They were certainly not tolerant of those who have, who have big uh, egos uh, but not particularly capable because they can impinge upon what you need to do. And I think the other thing that I notice, if there's a single aspect that is not attended to, then failure becomes more possible. So those sorts of series of things that I looked at and then from that, well, what is the package that I'm going to put together to deliver to the athletes I'm going to work with in our environment. So you need to take a little bit, a bit of, I think, from everybody and then put this package together. And that's how I started off. And Charlie, you've coached for so long. If I was to ask you, what are the main changes you've seen over those 50 years? Is it possible um, to summarise that and encapsulate it? Yeah, well, nothing stays the same. And unless you are flexible and prepared to adapt to, as you see, changes taking place, you will get left behind. Very particularly, say, from the science aspect, the technical aspects, things of that nature. And science opened the door to give you greater understanding. I was always quite reserved about opinions because opinions are sometimes emotionally driven, and we have to take that out of it, and that's where science gives you facts or figures. You've got to be a little bit careful on your interpretation of those. And my interpretation was all about, well, does that fit in terms of the philosophy that I'm trying to deliver? But it does give you the opportunity to move ahead and I think move closer towards perfection. But perfection is the thing today, <laughs> becomes the norm, and so the bar keeps getting raised. Have the demands changed in any sport of what it actually takes to be the best is the question. And I would say from, from uh, most possible, I mean, the physical side, that they will change. I don't see that the psychology's never changed because the psychology in being able to challenge yourself, being able to be fierce, to be able to be in control, I don't think that has changed. Maybe the management of athletes has changed a little bit, but ultimately it comes down to, well, how are you going to actually, say, implement what you need to, to have the athlete, as I see it, with the best mind in the competition. So I'm not sure that it certainly has changed from a technical aspect. It certainly changed in the physiology because 
we learn more and more and more. Back when I was coaching, they were saying, well, you have three different types of muscle fibres. Now, the latest research out is saying, well, you've got seven different types of muscle fibres and they are all refuelled differently. So that is certainly a change and, but that just <laughs> that enables us as a coach to be more precise and have a greater understanding of why things are happening. And I often hear where they talk about hamstrings and all oh, the the breaking down and things of that nature. Not so much in that was in AFL, which I spent about eight years after I retired from cycling. And one thing that stood out to me in all the work that I was doing over eight years, and something like about two and a half thousand individual bike sessions was that those who were getting hamstrings were not exposed enough to high force repeat type exercise. And that's the beauty of the bike. You can measure that and you could do it and you could actually target it. There were some who were saying that we're not targeting targeting the hamstrings and they didn't know what they're talking about because I knew we were and how we were actually doing it. And what I found over those eight years and thousands of bike sessions, people that were exposed to high force repeat activities were actually targeting their higher force muscle fibers. And so they got less tired and they had the, the capability to stand up to a higher resistance. And so I surmised that those who were breaking hamstrings, their higher force fibers weren't working, but they'd got tired. And so they're recruiting lower, lower force fibers that they didn't hold up. So measurement and science allows you to do things, I think a little bit better but you do have to take yourself out of the normal trend and say, oh, this happens to be that. You actually got to question yourself. Maybe science allows you to do that better too. As much as you are famous for physical development of your athletes, I think the thing that gets talked about the most these days is your approach to performance psychology, where you actually teach athletes to push themselves beyond their physical and mental limits. And it's such a topic these days, building resilience, making or helping people of all, whether they're in sport or whether they're at work or they're at home to be more resilient. I'm really interested in what was it in your life or your experience that pushed you or gave you the idea to put this in the center of your coaching philosophy? Well, I guess it really comes from initially your own performance as a, as a competitor and where you sort of think, well, could have I been better in that area? Now, I never ever had a coach. So everything that I'd done, you sort of tried to do it yourself. I guess that was, that was the sort of a start point. And you looked at the people that you're competing against and bearing in mind I was quite naive and you seen them as being fierce, relentless, hard-minded, better than what I was. And so from that, you then come back and say, well, that needs to be an important part of where we go because I've seen those people as being highly successful and I've seen it as that reason. But also when, um, when I moved into coaching, I was studying to be a teacher. So I went back to school and part of that is about psychology. I mean, that enhances you more. So I had the strong, the strong view that everything is driven by the mind. And even so, even in the recruitment of particular muscle fibres, within the muscles, that's driven by the mind. So everything that we do, the sequencing, everything we do is driven by the mind. And so we need to make, as I said in the training, of what we do, the best mind in the competition. And if we haven't trained the mind to do that, then, we'll, then we're failing. You can have the best body in the world. If we haven't conditioned the mind to satisfy the competition demands, then as a coach, we have failed. So it's a matter of trying to do all of those things together. And we also also knew that we need to be able to make good decisions when tired. And so that has to be part of your training. Everybody can do things when it's lovely. We've got to be able to do things when the pressure's on from a physical sense, but also the pressure of the competition. I started coaching here in South Australia with some kids. In South Australia, we were minnows on the national scene. We had some good, good riders, but basically we weren't what we need to do. So how am I going to change the psychology and physically equip them? So what I did, 
And so I said, well, I'll meet you at five o'clock in the morning. We'll do an hour on the road. And it was on. I wasn't a bullet. When you trained, it was on. And so they, we would train up the small hills and down them on fixed gear. And it would, then they would go, they would ride home. Then they had to start work at 7 or 7.30. So time for a bit of breakfast, ride to work and do that. And then they would have to get home and meet me at the bike track to train about uh, 4.30 in the afternoon. I had for them a standing kilometre, which is a hard, that's over one minute. So we'd do four to six of those on the 10 minute at probably 90%. I'm getting them to control and regulate, not just whoosh, bang. Now that is a top end hard training session filled up with lactate. And then I say, well, off you go home. This is a Friday. Off you go home and have a snack to eat, not too much because you're racing that night. So they go out at eight o'clock and they're racing warm up before and they're tired from <laughs> a pretty heavy schedule and the other blokes are all fresh. And uh, my expectation of them is I don't expect you to win, but uh, what I want to see is this thing in terms of uh, your skills, this terms in terms of your strategy, and I, you do not give in. And so we want, we want those things. So they went out and did it. Now, the first week, they struggled. They didn't complain. They accepted what we were trying to trying to do. But what I did see was a real focus when they were tired on trying to implement strategies and trying to maintain their skills. I'm saying, do not move on the bike. I don't want to see any grimaces in the face and <laughs> everything. I'm getting them to affect control over what you're doing. And then they would train Saturday, trained every day of the week and work five days a week. And then the second week, they improved the third week they started to win in the local competitions. And of course, all the, you know, all the know-alls are saying they're all going to die and things of that nature from, but so then I seen a change in the psychology. We can do this. Now we've got management over ourselves under duress. We're performing when others said we couldn't. Well, both of those kids went on to be Olympians and Mike Turter went on to be Olympic champion, Australian champion, uh, Commonwealth Games champion and all of those sorts of things. And it came about purely be simply because of the philosophy of self-challenge. They'll make the decision, the athlete themselves, how hard they will actually go. They'll make the decision when it's going hard whether I will give in or will I not give in. But for whatever reason they've seen, and that's part of the package that you got to have the capacity to take people with you, if we do this, I can get this outcome. Nobody knows what's possible, but you've got to have a pretty fair crack at it. So that's probably <laughs> give you a little bit of an idea how we started. And then I took that same philosophy when I took over as national coach in 1980. Now, that took a while to evolve. And look, there was um, resistance, but gradually the resistance melts away when you're successful. I want to talk to you actually about the books that you wrote on cycling coaching, but if I could just stick with you for a minute on this idea of building mental resilience. It's a great, it's a great example, Charlie, and it's proven, and it's been proven time and time again. There's also something you said many, many times about motivation. I'd just like to repeat the quote to you if I could. The coach creates the belief that the athlete's dreams are possible, but motivation must come from within. And so I know that you don't give big motivational speeches. You rely on the athletes to be self-directed. But, you know, could you tell me a little bit more about what the role of the cycling coach is once you take away the motivation and bring in the psychology and the science? I mean, if the athlete's motivation is high, we can just basically stand back and watch. But I mean, they have the motivation. They want to be successful. We can maintain that motivation, maybe enhance it a bit by the way that we deliver our package to them and create that belief that if you do these things, here is the outcome that you will get. Now, that outcome and the collection of outcomes will contribute to you performing at your best possible possibility. Now we can't guarantee success, 
But we have to create the environment that if you do these things, then you can be successful. But ultimately, it is the athlete who will make those decisions. And certainly I can say to you, I've had the case when high-performing athletes had lost their motivation. No matter what you will do or no matter what I do, when it wasn't there, it wasn't there. And they will try, but when the going gets tough, they will just tend to ease off a little bit. And when you get to the real performance, then it can be spasmodic because that's basically how it's been. Motivation, and I, I can tell you, I really tried hard with one particular guy. Do everything, try and, uh, you know, you've got to have a good relationship. Have a good relationship, try and encourage them along. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> right through to a final, it was all right, and the final, it didn't work. And that's when the heat is on. Well, let's talk about some finals then. Because I've heard you say that the highlight of your time as coach was the gold from the uh, team pursuit in 1984. Could you tell us a little bit about this, the story of this race and why it means so much to you? I mean, it's a bit of a long, <laughs> bit of a long story, but we actually started preparing for this in 1983. All of the lads that we had uh, in Australia were working full-time and the total budget for road and track cycling overseas was $29,000. <laughs> that was very little. So uh, some of the lads, out of their own pocket, we flew them over to Europe and they looked after themselves for three months. I, gave, I was in contact with them and had them doing stuff. That was the start of trying to get a good package together. And they rode reasonably well. We had a disaster, one lad... A fella and had some pretty serious head injuries, which he got over, and that was Mike Grender. Then when we started in um, for the preparation of 84, once again, we're all working full time. Any time that I've got, I'm taking in leave or long service leave, uh, and the lads were relying on their income to be able to eat, whereas their competitors had full-time coaches, and, and I'm coached for all disciplines sprint right through to the endurance events, the one person. Uh, whereas uh, the people were up against, they had multiple coaches, athletes full-time, coaches full-time, everything really laid on for them. But our lads had to supply some of their equipment and also pay. And we run some camps, and certainly I paid to look after some of them and feed them and things like that, and they had to pay themselves. So... Their commitment, you'd have to say, you would not get better. And probably that made them also drive a little bit harder when, when they were training. Our equipment was secondary to what was... And they kept changing the rules on equipment. And then we've also faced, uh, even in the competitions, where they changed the rules to, to help particularly the Americans along. Um, so there was things like this that we're up against. And then, of course, the ultimate thing is the use of performance-enhancing products. And that was all. And some of that came out later, of blood doping and things of that nature. So it was everything. Uh, nothing was easy, but that made the lads more determined. So every bit of training that I put to them away, they did. And they had the belief, and once again, here's this package. I'm saying to them, we are going down this path of science. We're trying to measure. We're doing this, doing that. And they believed it. Um, I remember one of them saying to me afterwards, said, when I got on that start line, I felt that I was the best prepared athlete. So that's our job as a coach. And I can remember Mike Turner, he crashed um, – 10 days before the Olympic Games and broke a bone in his hand. So there's two things that he's concerned about. One is that he's concerned about, oh, will he now ride me? Or And two, will I be actually able to ride with this hand? Fortunately or unfortunately, I'd broken my hand when racing years beforehand, two bones in a hand, but I'd gone to race down in Tasmania. I was not, not going to race, so I raced. And I just hung the web of my hand on my handlebars and managed to do it and rode reasonably well. And I, so I said to him, look, I've done this before. 
So there's no issue about your riding. In fact, you're going to feel more pain in your legs than you are going to feel from your hand. <laughs> so I was trying to give him an assurance, one, that he was going to ride, and two, that I'm not going to accept any weakness in, in him, or oh, I've got a broken hand, it'll be sore. And that's just, you, you make these decisions, how am I actually going to handle this with, it, with this particular athlete to ensure that he's going to be safe in his mind? In the uh, round against Italy, and I remember this week, and we were we qualified pretty well, but Italy had disc wheels, super bikes, and all of this stuff that was going to give them heaps of advantage. And so, in chatting with the with the lads, and we had a good lad there, and Nichols, who was aggressive, he loved to compete, and you try and bring it out of them, and so they decided, I got them to do this. They're going to attack the Italians first up in the first kilometre because I'm working on where Australians, we have this this fierceness about them, the, the digger mentality that we're cracking in. So they absolutely went for the – and we'll hang on. They went for the first kilometre and they'll take the race from there and they thought they'd be conditioned well enough. Well, they put two seconds in Italy in the first kilometre and that rattled them. And we held on to win by 1.7 seconds and I think and broke the track record. It's never been broken since because they pulled it down a bit later. <laughs> but it had been set the year before by the Russians and these Germans. This is the final of the team's pursuit at the Olympic Velodrome, Australia versus the United States. The team's pursuit and there's the start. And this is a wonderful chance for a gold medal for Australia. Pressure will go on. They're coming around now into, with just over uh, three and a half laps to go. Time and Walsh is selling them on. Michael Turner, I feel, will do a full lap here and possibly then drop out of the race. At the one kilometre to go, Mark Dick, Australia led by 1.27 seconds. They've increased their lead, and I would say they've increased it even further. Yes, it's now one and a half seconds. Could this be Australia's first gold medal of the Olympic game? More than two seconds is the difference now. Australia has the gold medal in its keeping. They come down to get the bell. Australia's pursuit team, they go through with one lap to go. The margin now is over two seconds. It's 2.05 seconds. The Australians would have to lose a rider to lose the gold medal as they come down the back straight with half a lap left to go. Michael Brender from Kevin Nichols. Dean Woods, they'll almost certainly finish in this perfect formation. Three riders as the Grender goes up the track. Woods comes through underneath and here's the gold medal to Australia. <laughs> performance by Australia's team. So, and the world, world champion team from the year before was there. So it was one of those things that probably the odds were against them, but by, I think, their character and all of the things you admire of people uh, came through. I mean, they've had, we've had other outstanding performances since then, broken world records, done things that have never been done before, in team pursuiting and never been done since. And they were done once again by this uh, capacity of a really good leader in O'Grady who would love the self-challenge and he asked me, can he do this in training, which meant doubling his workload. And I said, I don't have an issue with that. In fact, I would only have an issue if you're not prepared to self-challenge. As a leader, he did things that nobody thought was possible. And that's how you get somewhere. Charlie, it's a great story because it was also the start of the dynasty. It really began there in uh, in '84. I think we wasn't it the first gold medal since '56 for an Australian cycling team. It was uh, it was the beginning of a of a golden run, um, which I yeah. remember growing yes, up with. Yeah, it was, and those kids did so much for what was to follow because they provided the opportunity to get us into the Institute of Sport. They provided the opportunity for better funding and things of that nature. If they don't do everything that they did, then who knows where we would be now. Charlie, can I go back to managing yourself under duress, which is central to the message that you have. And it's so, as I said earlier, it's so relevant today. If an athlete, and I'm sure they do from other sports talk to you. And I know that you've, you've spoken to, you've done a lot of work with Australian football and you've, you know, you've spoken to the swimmers and so forth, but what would be your top tips? What would be the top two or three things that, that an athlete out there could do with the help of their coach to start managing themselves better under duress? 
got to be very clear about where you where you want to go and how you're going to get there. That's our job as a coach. If the athlete does not see that picture, it's difficult for them. Ultimately, it comes down to the very simple thing, except the fact that uh, self-challenge is critical. And I remember reading early in the piece that if we want to modify the body, you subject it to stress, chronic stress. So if it's lovely in training, the body says, oh, I like that, and I will stay like that. You actually have to severely challenge the body. Now, the mind is no different to the body. You must challenge the body. We all like to be comfortable. That's, that's why we have the standards of living that we do nowadays because of this pursuit of trying to make things more comfortable. We make things more comfortable for our children. I'm not necessarily sure we're getting the outcomes we would want by making it too comfortable for them because you're taking away this capacity for self-challenge. And as terrible it is to say, the more severe the challenge, sometimes the better it is. But it's not just challenge for the sake of challenge, it's managed challenge. So we've got to see, and you've got to, as a coach, you've got to work with your athletes to severely challenge them, and then you will give them some sort of feedback generally. Particularly when I was, say, walking, working with the footballers, I would, they would challenge, but then I would go back, and you would always look for something positive out of what they have done. It may be a minuscule thing because they've put themselves through a fair amount of torment, but that minuscule thing is maybe just all they need that, to say to them, that was worthwhile, now we can go on to the next step. Uh, it's, a, it's such an important thing, and I'm, I know as a father I'm very focused on it, and you make, it, you make a good point. I don't, you want things to be comfortable, but you also want a, con, a level of controlled risk to develop, yeah. you know, develop skills early, early on that you'll need later in, in life. So I think, I think it's a very relevant. Um... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Topic these days. Well, my son is doing it with his daughter. She's 11. And she's in dancing and some of the other children will be like they will and be a little bit negative, particularly because she has a hard work ethic and he's induced that into them. And uh, I just sit back and I watch. And I watch see, see this girl growing as a person, growing because she's working hard. She's now learning to manage the negativity of others but be successful. And she called me the other night. She was so proud of herself. It's that management of them that you love them dearly, and you've, but you've also got to get them to take on that self-challenge. Uh, and that has to be managed. And you've got to be a little bit careful about that too. You just can't be brutish and whatever else. It's that inch by inch by inch by inch that you keep sneaking away at it a little bit of that, well, a challenge, but a little bit of reward. Challenge, a little bit of reward. All oh, that didn't work. And you're quite happy to discuss that. And I would say to the athletes early in a bit, look, I don't know what the outcome of this will be, but I want to have a go at it and you give me feedback. And so you involve the athletes and they would give us feedback. And from there, then I may modify things and they would actually see 
oh, he's listening to us, this is happening or whatever else. I'd always listen up to point, but they never come to me and ask me to change things to make it easier. <laughs> that was never going to happen. Actually, Charlie, you, you didn't have a manual when you started. There was no coaching manual for cycling. You ended up riding the first three, which is amazing. And a lot of the training we have today and a lot of the success of the Australian cycling team today comes from that period, I think, when you were setting it up. But that's not the question because I know that uh, we, could, we can be contentious in that area. I'd like to, to say to you, if we could wind the clock back and we could take you back to that 25-year-old who was starting his career, very young actually, to be a coach. If you were able to stand in front of that person now, what advice would you give them about coaching? Well, you've been very kind. You've knocked 10 years. <laughs> I started with about 35. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I thought the research said 25. My apologies. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I would say to this, and I've said to this other guys that are starting out on their coaching career, Get your philosophy right because that will define you as a coach. All of the decisions you make and what you achieve will come from your philosophy. And you need to be very careful. Don't let people take you away from that philosophy unless you think what they're trying to tell you is well-founded. You need to be a good listener. Seek information. I was a pursuer of information. Love listening to people like Herb Elliott and others, uh, John Landy. So not from our sports, other people from different sports. I love to listen to them. I used to love to listen to, if you could get hold of them, some of the best in the world of cycling. And from that, you get a feeling about what is required to be successful. You know, the underlying thing with them all is about psychology. And I'm talking to people the very best in the world. I'd be saying to them, do not accept staff to work with you who are not on the same planet as you because you need to have a staff that is supportive of the philosophy. You may need to bring them back occasionally to that philosophy. I have certainly seen the situations where others have allowed people to modify the philosophy and to be come with the philosophy of oh, you train too hard, you'll get this, or if you train too hard, you know, all the. I, I went through that as a cyclist, but I've seen coaches get brought down by that. So you have to be very strong, very clear about your philosophy, write it down, all the note. What has uh, brought you to this philosophy? And then compare it against what you think is the link. But you need to be very clear about that. And certainly as a head coach, you need to be very clear and see that that is there. And after that comes all of the technical aspects and all of those other things, but it is the philosophy that will underpin everything. So if they're clear on that, that's a pretty good start. And then you've got all the experts to use. Charlie, I imagine being in cycling, particularly in any period actually, yeah, there must have been a time that you were ethically challenged with or by the use of performance enhancing drugs. Did that ever happen to you? And, and if so, how did you navigate those ethical question marks? Well, I was never challenged to the point to consider us ever using performance enhancing drugs. And when I raced, it wasn't part of my, cause I decided I was a hobby cyclist. I knew a little bit of what was going on or hear about it. So I went and talked to my doctor and he gave me his opinion on it all. And I accepted that. And I said, well, if I'm a hobby cyclist, I work full time, I do all of these things. So I didn't want to cheat myself. So that's what I did. Now, certainly I was challenged both internationally and by some in Australia, uh, whom I believe were using performance enhancing drugs. Now, I guess if I, when I retired, I retired probably a little bit bittered by the, uh, the use of performance enhancing drugs, my perception of it, should I say. And of course, politics and politics is one of those things that <laughs> a coach should never be a politician. The moment you are a politician, you start making decisions of appeasement and that you cannot do. So you undermine yourself. I think we did, in looking back at it, 
back on it extraordinarily well in what we did. Now, do you, as I said, well, I had my perception of people in, and you cannot let anybody like that, as I, my perception, and I fought <laughs> hard, that you have a perception that they may be using uh, performance-enhancing products. They, if they come in and you tolerate it, then you're accepting of it. As a, as a coach, you're dealing with other people's children and you cannot go down any path that may have a negative impact sometime upon them in their future, both in the physical aspect and the psychological aspect. And I would say to them, when you finish your career and later in your life, you can sit down and you look at people in the eye and you can say, that was actually me, not something that silly old bloody coach that I had coaching us gave me to use. And I think that was particularly important in terms of their psychology. But you also have... You know, you, you have to have respect for the integrity of the sport and team integrity within that and cannot go down that doping is perceived as being acceptable un, under any circumstances. You have to also have that attitude that there is equal opportunity for all of us to be part of the national team and not one by resorting to using performance-enhancing products to get into the team. And so you had athletes within that team that were supportive of that philosophy, and they would provide you with information. And so we had to have that, how do you say, that uh, environment within our team. And that is driven by the head coach. And so I, mean, I discouraged the use of needles by our cyclists purely and simply because I didn't know where that would end up. If I'm encouraging the use of needles, does that mean then later on in social life they will go down that path? So you can't go down. And we, we had a rule. No cyclist to take anything without the permission of our doctor. And then our other guy who worked hand-in-hand hand under the doctor, what they called it just one year, but he was a fitness trainer, and then once they got clearance, and then, then it came down to me because my concern then is about the psychology of being dependent on any product rather than being dependent on you working hard. I thought that the 90s was probably the worst period when you could take what you like, when you liked, and how much you liked. The 80s wasn't good. The 90s, more products became so. In the 80s and 90s was a particularly harsh environment late in the 90s they started to put limits say on the use of epo before it was limitless and then they, so they put some constraints after i retired but it was still still being used but they were a little bit more inhibited I mean, to me i always had the opinion that they weren't doing enough <laughs> doing everything that i possibly could i think very early in the uh, 80s, I thought there was an attitude by most countries that, oh, tut, tut, performance-enhancing drugs, or oh, they're not the thing. But, gee, if we're winning, I'm pretty happy about it. So, so I sort of thought that tended to exist in those times. That did gradually change. Then they had the battle with athletes taking them to court if things weren't precisely right. Um, so it was certainly a battle, battle for administrators. But then if I go along to the year 2000, AIS worked with us for two years, travelling with our team to see what happened when we trained different environments on our blood. So they got a picture of us. And then they did all of this other testing. And they came up with a blood test for EPO to be used at the 2000 Olympics. Now, I think one of the other countries, might have been French, came up with a urine test for EPO. And so the administrators decided, oh, well, if you fail both of these tests, then you're in trouble. But the only problem with that was, and this is how I, it was explained to me, 
On the urine test, when they took the injections for EPO, and I think you had to do a series of it and then do other things with it and whatever, however complex it was, after you've taken your last injection, it lasted in for about three days in the urine and then it was clear. So you had a three-day period after the last injection where they could go positive. On the blood test... You, they took the injection, it goes to the kidney, which secretes a hormone, goes to the blood marrow, and it manufactures uh, this new hemoglobin, which was actually different. But it would take three, probably four days before that would come up. So you were never going to fail both tests. So the urine drops out just before the blood one comes up. So I didn't think they're really serious. And there are other things that went on in Sydney that once again really bitter me. I, I got kids to put their heart and soul in it, doing everything that they possibly can. And from their perception, being beaten, people aren't doing it as we were. It's just one of those things. It's part of sport. You do your best. You think for the athletes. You do the best that you can with the responsibility of their parents and sport. If I look back on it, we would have had gold medals pouring out of our ears at Olympic Games if I had even allowed the use of it, but much less if I had implemented a system like, say, the uh, communist countries had done. They would have been flowing everywhere. Well, thank you for not doing it. That's important. That, well, that That's the decision you make, and I'm happy to live with it. And so are most of the athletes, so. Charlie, when I rang you to prepare for this interview, you told me you'd been writing some of your uh, memoirs from your life. Sport has been such a big part of your life, particularly coaching, although you were a very successful, well, (laughs) successful cyclist. I know you're going to say you're not, but you won hundreds and hundreds of races in your own right. What's the legacy you believe you've left as a coach? I would think probably a legacy of that if you want to succeed, it will only come from hard work, self-challenge, take yourself somewhere where you've never been before. I think that's what we set out to do. I think that's what we achieve success with. I mean, all the other things of introducing science and all of those things, I think they will all just tend to fall away. Whereas I think the hard work ethic, has been watered down significantly. I think psychologists have a lot to answer for because they will make decisions without really understanding. See, as a coach, you've got to cover everything, not just one particular area. And I can remember sitting down with a psychologist just a couple of years ago, a sports psychologist, and working him through some aspects about self-challenge, but also on their responsibility to teach the athlete how to manage, how to stand up and manage when uh, he's faced with difficulty. So I don't think that will ever change. Not in, not in, as a matter of fact, I watched uh, a bit last night on a guy called Ronaldo, soccer player. Goodness gracious me, I've never seen anything like it. He, he is just so incredible. But what also came out on there is his hard work ethic, his love to challenge, his love to pursue, to be the best in the world. Not just the best, the best in the world. I don't think it matters where you go. When you see these people that are really successful, you go back to Jordan, all of these guys in these different sports have this love of self-challenge to pursue to take themselves where others are not prepared to go. And so I'd like to think that that's the legacy you leave. Charlie Walsh, it's been a privilege to chat with you today. I have had you on the wish list for this show from day one when we started. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on a long, successful and illustrious career. And I'll let you get back to the dinner, which probably is burning right now in the kitchen. I don't know. Long, slow cooking. (laughs) Paul, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, And can I just finish off a bit? I think I've been privileged, privileged to spend the time in company that I think people are exceptional. And firstly, I'll start with Neil Craig. 
because Neil was very much a part of the philosophy that we had. I used to rely on him if I wanted fixed up on the psychology of athletes, I would involve him. So he, I thought Neil was an exceptional person, an exceptional contributor to where we went. Another guy, Rick Charlesworth. Once again, I used to love – he was a guy that I used to love to listen to. You listen to him and his philosophy. It's all about hard work. It's all about challenge and people like that. I spent a little bit of time with Eddie Jones and I admired what he's done with the, with the English uh, rugby team. Now, I don't know anything about rugby, but I just sat and watched his performance and all of the things you like to see in an athlete, they were there at that last World Cup. So you know, I'm very privileged to have spent company and people who I think are exceptional coaches and all have that qualities in them that I admire them. So, okay, won't hold you any longer, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. All the best. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with the legendary cycling coach, Charlie Walsh. The key highlights for me were his views on the damage that psychologists can do, how preparing the mind for competition is as important as preparing the body, and how self-challenge is way more important than challenge from others and is crucial if you are to develop a world championship mindset. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. In our next episode, we'll be speaking to former Australian cricketer and now coach, Julia Price. If I don't do this well, that means every other female in the future is not good enough, is not good enough to be a, a BBL coach, and I, I hadn't even thought of it that way at that stage. So, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, I think my suggestion, advice to people is just do what you do the best. Worry about your own strengths. Don't worry about the external factors and the and the noise that goes on around it all. You do what your strengths are and be confident in those strengths, and don't worry too much about the outside unless you want to. And just before we go. Coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.